Welcome along everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcasts. Today we'll be having a conversation with two men. Two men with different backgrounds. One is an ex-British soldier, the other an ex-Republican prisoner. It gives me great pleasure to welcome along Glenn Bradley and Danny Morrison. Welcome gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Gentlemen, first of all, I would like to start off by asking you both to tell us a little bit about your background, your early years, and what it was like growing up, just for anyone that maybe isn't familiar with both your life stories. Do you want to start us off, Glenn? I was born in 1967 in Unionist Loyalist, uh, West Belfast. I was born, reared and raised in a two-up, two-down terrace at 32 Ainsworth Drive. And whenever the conflict erupted in 1969, or the most recent period of conflict erupted in 1969, I grew up probably about 200 yards, 200 metres from what became the West Belfast Peace Line. So in that hostile environment that I was growing up in, um, there was a lot of violence on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. Bombings, shootings, were an everyday occurrence and it's safe to say that in the community and area that I grew up in I saw the Ulster Volunteer Force, the UVS, as the defenders of my community and I saw the IRA as a sectarian force that was heaping suffering and killing and obliteration in my community. Yeah. So I went to school, uh, went to Woodville Primary School, then Glenwood Primary School and Obviously, after completing my 11 plus, transferred up to the Belfast Boys model. And that palpable violence uh, was also cemented into me at the time of the hunger strikes. Mm-hmm. When I know Danny will have a different memory of what that period was for him, but for me, it was a gauntlet of nationalists lined up on the Ardoin Road to petrol bomb our bus as it was going down on the day that Bobby Sands died. Mm-hmm. And as we then flee that bus in real fear of our lives because it was ignited, you know, the, the, the yelling that went on then, you know, you hung bastards, you orange cunts, you, everything that was just part and parcel of our everyday lives back then. So it's safe to say that by the age of 16, I wanted to hit back. Mm-hmm. And I could have very easily grown up in the area that I did, put my hand up and joined the 1st Battalion of the UVF. Mm-hmm. Um, through good sound advice, as I know now, um, I didn't, and instead I enlisted into the British Army, um, joining the Army as an infantry junior leader uh, initially, uh, where I was trained at Sir John Muir Barracks in, in Folkestone and Kent, and later went on to serve in a couple of different units okay. within the Army between 1984 and 1994, which saw me serving in Northern Ireland on five different tours as well as operations elsewhere. In 1994 the the conflict as I thought was over. I came out of the army and joined the Ulster Unionist Party. I became a party officer, uh, was the West Belfast constituency chairman at the time of the talks and therefore was shuttling between the talks and back to West Belfast trying to keep people brief, keep people informed. Uh, to what became the the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which I wholly ratified and endorsed and to this day still do. It is, uh, for me, it is the foundation stone of our democracy here, Mm -hmm. or it has become the foundation stone of our democracy here. 
uh, personal tragedy in that my then wife contracted breast cancer, took me away from public life and politics so that I could focus on my business and uh, on raising my children because I've become a, a single parent. Um, and that continued, to be honest, up to uh, 2012 and the flag protests. And what happened in 2012 was that I saw people espousing to be loyalists and unionists, hanging the union flag upside down, wearing it like a Batman cape. I think we can all guess who you're referring to there. Yeah. And it absolutely made me aghast. You know, here was me, a former soldier, a former member of the Ulster Unionist Party, who had fought for and buried people under that flag, and it was being treated shabbily, disrespectfully, and with complete discourtesy. And from people who haven't actually lived through the conflict? Correct. Correct. Um, so I basically re-involved myself in public life, and I did that by contacting people that I would have known from both the Republican and Loyalist community and said, I don't want to get back into it, but I don't want to be in active politics. Okay, um, we'll probably get into that more okay. as we go on. Danny, can I just um, ask you to maybe um, give us the same little bit of background about your early years, what kind of formed your political thinking, and if you wouldn't mind. Well, I'm much older than Glenn, <laughs> to begin with. You are. I, uh, I was born in 1953 in a two-bedroomed house, housing trust house in Andersonstown. And uh, I grew up, I was there until I was 10. We moved down to the Falls Road at that stage, uh, which actually, ironically, was a step up the social ladder back then because my mother and father wanted to buy their own house. But we moved from a house that had hot water and an inside toilet in the bathroom to a house that had an outside toilet. My first political uh, experience was probably in 18, October 1964, whenever the uh, Sinn Féin was banned from running for the general election and ran Billy McMillan as an independent Republican. The, Ian Paisley threatened to come on to the Falls Road to the Diva Street office of Sinn Féin if the tricolour wasn't removed from the window. And riots started, which lasted for almost uh, a week. Uh, the way it affected young Danny was that although I, had, I, I lived in the Falls, I still went to school in Andersonstown, so me and my mates, we had to walk three miles to school and three miles back every day. That is no harm, but that was the first time I heard the name Paisley and him being associated, uh, you know, in frightening terms with the alleged kidnapping of a young girl called Moral Lands who worked at a factory in the Donegal Road. And he was proselytising in the factory at lunchtime and she disappeared. It was a, it was a scandal back in the, in the early 60s, but Paisley to me was an ogre. And I, I later, when I became a writer, wrote about this period and discovered that many of the people who were arrested in the uh, tricolour rats, as they became known in 1964, subsequently emerged within the Republican struggle. For example, Brian Keenan, who was, I think, a young married man with two or three kids, he ended up being arrested, doing six months in jail, and then later he emerged as a chief of staff of the IRA uh, when, the, when the conflict arose. I had an uncle who was a, uh, a senior IRA man, Harry White, who had been sentenced to death in the South uh, in the 40s, although it was later uh, commuted. And I had another uncle, uh, Hugh Downey, who was a Republican Labour MP at Stormont. But even though, I mean, I was quite aware and certainly admired my Uncle Harry, I don't think either of those two people influenced my politics because I got my politics from the street. Mm -hmm. And particularly in 1966, 
with the 50th anniversary of the 1916 Rising. Stormont government banned all buses and trains coming into Belfast to minimise the number of people at the march. And then a few weeks after that uh, march, which I witnessed on the Falls Road, the, the UVF, which had been reorganised, uh, in mostly around the Shankill area, I think the UVF uh, was responsible for killing uh, a young man who I came to live next door to his mother, Peter Ward, and uh, another uh, man called Scullion, John Scullion. And the police at the time said that John Scullion had actually been stabbed and, and suggested it was a domestic incident. And the family had to go to court, get the body exhumed, and it was discovered that he had been shot. So these are, the way we simplistically looked at it was this was punishment for celebrating 1916 yeah. on the Falls Road. I then uh, watched, I was very much interested in the Vietnam War, May 68, the students uprising, the civil rights movement. I later uh, went down on some people's democracy protests. Uh, around the city centre, the city hall, etc. But I think that uh, 1960, well, October 1968, just was huge. The 5th of October march, which is for the first time televised, uh, an, a, an attack on a nationalist parade for civil rights, the way the police behaved, that went around the world, and certainly, uh, certainly radicalised myself and many of my my generation. I was 15 at the time. Mm-hmm. When the troubles eventually broke out after the Battle of the Bogside and the, the pogroms in 1869 when people were burnt out of their homes, I, uh, at that stage I was involved with an, a group from the Shankill Road to Sandy Road. We were, we were known as the Belfast Pirates and we had our own transmitters uh, which we used on the Radio Ulster uh, wave bomb whenever they went off the air. Back then it was at half eleven at night. Okay. Uh, so I would across the Shankill every Saturday and Sunday, went to friend's house, made of mine, Johnny Doak, lived in Matchett Street in the Shankill, and uh, we would swap parts. But when the barricades went up, the IRA, and I hadn't split at this stage, came to me and asked me, did I have a transmitter? And I said yes, so I give them my transmitter, and it was used for Radio Free Belfast. Okay. It was above the long bar. The owner of the long bar was Paddy Lanahan, whose daughter later became the president of Ireland, Mary McAleese. Mm-hmm. And I never saw Johnny after that. Johnny, we, we, we did, could... We did could, you ever get your transmitter back? No, I did not. But we could recognise each other's signal because we'd swap parts, different valves and that, they're different capacitors. And uh, a few days after Radio Free Belfast went on the air, Radio Shankill came on the air, and immediately I recognised that it was Johnny's transmitter. And uh, we never saw each other again right. uh, since learned that he's, he's died but that was my uh, awakening into politics I learned it from the street uh-huh. and then of course started to read history books and that uh, started to put things together and whenever the IRA split occurred after the curfew and when internment was introduced I found myself although I was a pacifist long hair in the peace you know Woodstock all, all that type of thing uh, I found myself being drawn to those who were known as the, the provisionals. Mm-hmm. I found their arguments that we weren't going to get our civil rights until we get our na- national rights. I found that uh, to be persuasive, mm-hmm. even though I had major problems with uh, many aspects of, of violence uh, at that time. But that's, that's, that was my political awakening. Okay, thanks for both your introductions there, guys. Uh, question for both of you. How did you first meet? And I suppose given your Republican background, Danny, and your military background, Glenn, was there any tension in that first meeting? Absolutely not. I actually had met uh, Glenn's uncle, who I had a lot of respect for, uh, and became the mayor of Belfast. Mm-hmm. That, that was like 
after I was elected in, in mid Ulster, and there was some sort of uh, I don't know, some sort of loose engagements, but nothing, nothing formal. But I mean, Glenn. I didn't know Glenn until uh, I saw actually Glenn on Twitter, and uh, we agreed to meet. And I came over to his place with a book, a copy of a book, not knowing that in my prison I had published a book about my prison letters called "Then the Walls Came Down," and in that book was a letter to my partner, in which I am commenting on the, the kidnapping of uh, an RUC detective on the border. Turned out to be Glenn's, Glenn's uncle. uncle. Yeah, yeah, Detective Constable Louis Robinson, um, who was Mount Pottinger's CID, and he had been off sick for a period of time, and he was down fishing in Dingle Bay, and coming back over the border, basically fifteen armed men posing as UDR, uh, kidnapped him, held him for three days, tortured him, before killing him. This was in 1990. Am I correct? September 1990. Yeah and uh, the regiment I was serving and were also serving on the border at that time. So the actual incident happened within uh, our regimental tactical area of responsibility. So at the time it was a huge event in my life that post six years of army service as it was at that time um, caused me a huge heartache, huge anger, huge frustration. Um, here was a man who I knew considered himself Irish, being abducted, tortured and killed by other men who considered themselves Irish. Mm-hmm. And it posed a huge dilemma for me, you know, in, in the sense that uh, rage, revenge, uh, all those motivations that when you are an armed soldier, a well-armed soldier, go through your brain because you know who the suspects are. Uh, or who was suspected of the crime and how did you keep that anger as you rightfully point out uh, I think we all would have them feelings Glenn. how did you keep that in check um, the realisation that I was there to do my duty um, you know I was a soldier uh, a professional soldier it was a choice and our discipline that we had been schooled in is what is what took me through. There's no doubt that I considered revenge. Some people would say that um, discipline and the British Army don't go in the same sentence. And they would be pretty right to do say and do that. But you asked me the question about me, what, what made yes, me prevail in September mm-hmm. 1990, what stopped me yeah. going out and taking revenge was simply my, my military disciplines and skill yeah. um, of that time. Um, but yeah, I mean, Danny had, had came over that day and he had brought the book and we'd read and we'd had a yarn and we'd been engaging through other events indirectly because I had gotten reinvolved in, in reconciliation work. Um, and we just hit it off. You know, we talked geology. I'm in the natural stone game now. Mm-hmm. I sell a lot of natural stone. And we talked about... Irish blue limestone and the reality that 460, 425 million years ago, <laughs> the, 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 the original inhabitants of, of Ireland were actually crinoid fossils and that there was no man had the right to say I'm an indigenous Irishman because nobody sprouted up from the sod of this island and we had a good laugh about that and it, our friendship, because that's what it is now, uh, yeah. largely blossomed from that initial first meet. Well, when, when you first came in here um, today to the Stormont Hotel where we're having this interview, 
exactly embrace each other and give, your, give each other a hug, which that's brilliant. Great to see that. He was trying to pickpocket me. <laughs> say, say that again, Donnie. He was trying to pickpocket me. I'm sick Because, you know, the fiends have all the money. Sure, you know what I mean. It's, uh, it's uh, no, word. I mean, it, it, it's true. A, a friendship has, has developed between us and a, a huge respect that while we may have come from completely different backgrounds, that... Uh, political backgrounds, I'm saying, and, yeah. and, and obviously identical identity backgrounds. Yeah. That when we actually peel away the onion skin, mm-hmm. there to analyse Danny's up raising on the, on the falls and mine on the on the Woodview, there, there actually isn't that much difference between those upbringings. And I suppose that's what we in shared Ireland are trying to achieve here. Is that you know this is one landmass. It's called Ireland. And we have different identities, religious beliefs, cultural backgrounds. But at the end of the day, we must come to the realisation that we all have to live here together. And we have to get on together. And I think you two gentlemen are a refreshing example of how that can happen. And it's probably when we get mature and older in years, we can look at things more practically. Donnie, in 1981, at the Sinn Féin Ardèche, you made a famous speech. Will anyone object if, with a ballot paper in one hand and an armalite in this hand, we take power in Ireland? Can you tell me a little bit about the political climate back then and what, I suppose, made you say them words? Well, I mean, historically, constitutional politics and electoralism has often led to splits and tensions in the Republican movement. If you go back to late in the 19th century, you know, the differences between uh, Parnell and uh, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, again, various splits in Sinn Féin, various offshoots down the years. Uh, I actually, one year earlier, in 1980, I myself and veteran Republican Jimmy Drum had been delegated by our national executive, the Art Collier, to speak against the motion from, actually, Francie Malloy, from uh, Tyrone Sinn Féin, who was calling upon us to drop our policy and to contest the local government elections in May 81. Now, whilst privately, people like myself, and I remember Adam, Jerry Adams and Dahi O'Connell and myself around 77 or 78 discussing the, you know, the possibilities of, of being involved in elections and how would that pan out, how would it work, etc. Uh, we were still, we still had no way of making that transition mm-hmm. peacefully, successfully, with agreement and with it within the organisation. So it wasn't until actually Frank McGuire died in Fermanagh South Tyrone and uh, my friend Jim Gibney proposed that we put up Bobby Sands for election. Mm-hmm. Bobby was in, was in the second or third week of hunger strike at that stage. And uh, we had a meeting and we agreed to run with it. Bobby Sands was consulted. He agreed to stand. Now, there was a big risk in this because, I mean, obviously, likes of Mark McGuinness, Jay Adams, myself, were associated with this decision, and if Bobby had lost by one elect, one vote, Margaret Thatcher would have, you know, crowed even your own people reject you. Mm-hmm. So it was it was full of risks, but we we took the, the chance, and uh, of course Bobby got elected, and instead of using that as an opportunity for compromising on the hunger strike and, and, and meeting the prisoners halfway, Mrs Thatcher changed the law on the representation of the People Act so that no other prisoner anywhere in the world, so say for example. 
uh, an IRA prisoner in the south of Ireland or one in, in New York or one in Germany couldn't stand. And that was why when the second battle action was called at Fermanagh South Tyrone, we, we, we couldn't put forward a prisoner, so we put forward Bobby's election agent, Owen Caron. And of course Owen uh, was elected and uh, when the hunger strike ended in the 3rd of October 1981, there were actually people within the Republican movement who were, who were called upon internally saying now Owen has to resign because that seat was borrowed mm-hmm. you know it was borrowed from the Maguire family mm-hmm. and that we have to stand down now funny enough some of these people I won't name whenever the split came in 1986 some of these people walked out with Republican Sinn Féin uh, because they objected to Sinn Féin ending its policy of abstentionism towards uh, Leinster House, yeah. not Westminster, and yet they were they were in support of a guy who was going to take a seat in Westminster. Yeah. So that we, we we got Owen elected. In between times, the May local government election had taken place in in, in May eighty one, and because we were barred, our our constitution barred us from participating, and you you could see the rise of the Irish Independence Party, People's Democracy got people elected, uh, the RSP had people elected to Belfast City Hall, so. We realised that we, we needed to change it. There was a new Secretary of State came in in October 1981, Jim Pryor, and he announced an idea that he was going to try and form some sort of rule in devolution. So we knew that there was going to be an Assembly election coming up at some stage, and we needed to change our policy towards this. So we, the Art Collier put down a motion at the Ardesh uh, that October, November 81 that the incoming Ard Collier, National Executive, should be allowed on its own to assess whether or not circumstances pertain that would be the right to contest the Assembly elections on an abstentionist basis. Mm-hmm. And we thought it was cut and dried. So as the debate was taking place in, in the Mansion House, a lot of people were getting up and uh, opposing it, saying, no, 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 electoralism is a wrong road to go down. It'll, it'll suck everything away from the struggle. It'll take personnel away. It'll take finance away. <coughs> you know, it'll lead to us selling out, basically. Mm-hmm. And we were sitting up at the table, and Terry Adams says, right, everybody up there and argue the point. So I got up to make the point, and uh, without any plan, it was un- totally unplanned. Without any plan? Absolutely none whatsoever. I wasn't even planning to speak at the... At the at okay. So I got up, and that, that came out of me. Now, obviously, I think I was playing to the gallery, yeah. in a way, wanting to reassure people who were concerned about what effect it would have on the armed struggle, and at the same time, uh, we needed to be involved in politics yeah. for a, a variety of reasons. Uh, and not least because the IRA and the Republican struggle for years have been taken off people. Lend us your car, give us your son and daughter, buy the paper, go out in a march, go out in a protest, do this, do that. It had always been taken of the community. And in a way, being elected, being a councillor, being a senator was a way also of giving something back to the community. Okay. Now, when I was canvassing, I, I realised very quickly, and I ended up accidentally being in the Ulster. What happened was that we needed 12 candidates to qualify for TV and radio time, and we had 13 candidates. But in middle in Tyrone, two of the candidates' supporters argued over the carve-up in the constituency for PR election. Okay. And I was told to go up and get one of them to run, yeah. at least. And if they didn't run, I was to run. Yeah, uh-huh. And this was on the day, this is hours before the close of poll. I was the editor of Infoblock, and I loved working as, in Dublin. Yeah. Uh, so I went up, and uh, they... they Whilst they were united, uh, we couldn't get their supporters totally united at that. So I became the candidate, and the two candidates became my election agent and my director of elections. Okay. 
so I stood and I, and I got elected. But on the, when I was canvassing, it was quite obvious to me. I remember going to this house in Stavon, and a woman said to me, Son, I love to hear you on TV and radio, but I cannot tolerate those bombs. Mm-hmm. It was always clear to me that there was going to be a ceiling on the support for Sinn Féin. Uh, I mean, it's going to be the hardcore support, the fundamentalist Republicans would, would support you through thin, thick and thin, but there was always going to be a level at which you're not going to reach through there because of the, the moral problems that people had with aspects of the, the IRA's armed struggle. Mm-hmm. Now, having said that, at that stage, there was no way was I thinking that the armed struggle, that, that the electoral politics should substitute for armed struggle. It was I was of the belief that we, that the Britain historically had ignored the mandate of the Irish people, like the time of the Home Rule Act, the Third Home Rule Act was passed, then we, we suffered partition, and all of, all of the, you don't have to go into the history of it, but there was a lot of grounds for being suspicious of the potential for electoral politics of resolving our problems at that time. Very good. Tell me this, gentlemen, and I'll go to yourself first, Glenn, if you don't mind. Now, this is a, a massive question, so I understand I could take us years to answer it, but kind of sum it up. What is required to create a truly shared Ireland? Very simple question with a not-so-simple answer. It's a very emotive question. Um, I think for me at my age, and looking back on our shared history, um, it's looking and analysing our shared history. Uh, and I said it earlier about peeling away onion skins. And it's about peeling away myth. It's about peeling away propaganda. And it's about peeling away, quite frankly, the deceits and lies that some of us have been told for over a century or almost a century. Okay. You know, so if I look at my family and my history, um, when my great-grandparents who signed the Ulster Solemn League and Covenant. They signed that because the northeast region of Ireland was the industrial north. It was the well-being, it was the pump house, the workhouse of the island of Ireland. And I can wholly see why uh, they signed the covenant. I can wholly see why my great-grandfather was a, a UVF man, um, even though he spoke fluent Gaelic apparently, as Presbyterians. but uh, So I get that. And that's the, the, the family history that I inherited. Partition happened and, you know, let's face it, it was imperialists who had done it in Persia, had, were thinking and constructing it in India, running scenarios, because India was already inflaming at that time. And through lobbying, they created two states on this island that rightly or wrongly has badly served people like me and, and Danny and, and our, our age group now. Now I know there's a lot of unionists who will go, oh, no way, no way. But the reality is that in, when the Government of Ireland Act was created, it was created as a temporary measure on this island. It was never thought that a hundred years later it would still be on. And it led to the creation of two bastard states on this island. One bastard focused on marching rights, and the other bastard focused on religious rights. Very good. And that's my view of it. That, you know, I, I wasn't born in, until 1967, so while on our engagements I would hear Danny and others talk about the Orange State, I wasn't part of that Orange State. Mm-hmm. 
It's a state you were born into. I was born into a socio-economic that was pure conflict. Yeah. And I, I, I lived in it and thrived in it. Um, and I became, you know, I, I, I could take on the, the, the role of, you know, I was injured in an old warning car bomb um, as a child. So I could take on the, the victimhood if I so pleased. Mm -hmm. um, I choose not to because I don't believe it's constructive. But the reality is that we all have inherited these identities and these um, histories that sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, sometimes they're highly glossed, sometimes they are totally propagandized. And I believe that for all of us to start considering a shared future that we all as individuals have to as key people and as role models within our families say, you know, I know we were told that that may not actually be the truth. So start questioning? Yeah, we start questioning ourselves. The truth begins in the analysis of yourself. Mm -hmm. And from that, it, it reaches out throughout our families. Mm -hmm. It reaches out throughout our communities. Mm -hmm. So that the reconciliation process is coming out of family homes and upwards towards the politics. Because I do believe politics has failed. So, so it's driven by the people? Absolutely. It has to be the people. It has to be the people here that, that reconcile, it has to be the people here that meet and engage in an open and, and, and honest manner that doesn't say, I am right and you are wrong. With that, respect. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm often asked what is missing presently within our peace process, within what is going on, within the stalemate at Stormont. And it's three words, parity of esteem. Okay. And I know people may say, but is it maybe not leadership? But the leadership is defunct because there's no parity of esteem. Mm -hmm. You know, I can meet Danny, I can meet you, I can meet anybody, and I will engage with anyone this day based on how they engage with me this day, irrespective of our past. Correct. And I will openly, with the God-given brain that I have been given, analyze, reflect, and say, well, yeah, that maybe is right, that maybe is wrong, or I may turn around and say, no, I fundamentally disagree with you on that, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to fall out with you over it, I'm not going to pick up a rifle again and try kill you over it. And I think that that's what we all need to do. We all need to sit in these inherited, hand-me-down beliefs that we have been given, yeah. that we question just who and what we are, because certainly... Glenn Bradley from the Wee Woodville is first and foremostly an Irishman. I am specifically a Belfastrian from the province of Ulster. Uh -huh. But all three parts of that identity are important to me. Yeah. But I'm also a British citizen. Yeah. I'm also an Irish citizen because post the Good Friday Agreement I, I take up that right that was given to me mm -hmm. to be British, Irish or both. Yeah. I choose both. I'm not saying one is better than the other. But it's the fact that that exists and that in order to be at that level and in order to engage, you have to analyze what is actually true about the past. So for example, Danny and I would come at a lot of things through the one mantra, which is no more suffering. Yeah. We have each agreed, that's our mantra, that, that's what we will engage with anybody on the premise of no more suffering. Therefore, we, if we can do it, with his past and my past. Absolutely. Others can do it. But what is lacking is those three little words, parody, parody of esteem, 
and I believe that there's a lot of people in both the Republican and in the, the Unionist communities who don't want to practice the true meaning of parity of esteem, which well, in my book means Danny is as equal a human being as me, and regardless of what political aspirations or other ways that we have for this island, that we have a right to voice those persuasive, persuasive arguments, and that we have a right to discuss those. And in order to get to that, we need to peel away that little onion skin that all of us here have inherited, rightly or wrongly. A great answer, Glenn. Danny, same question to you. What is required to create a truly shared Ireland? Well, obviously, honesty, forgiveness, compassion, reconciliation. You see, it's impossible. I was, in, I was actually in prison whenever I'd been charged with conspiracy to murder and kidnap in an IRA membership in 1990, uh, uh, although some of the charges were amended, but I, and I was served eight years in jail when the ceasefire was called. I remember it was with Pat Sheehan, who had been the longest man on the second hunger strike when it ended, and he, he, he was in the second term in jail. He would serve a total of over 20 years in prison. And uh, when, the, when the news came on, we, I just went back to my cell and just wept for all of the people who died, everyone. This is when the first ceasefire was announced. In August 1994. You went back to your cell and wept. Yeah, just cried. And also with relief. Because I had formed the, the view uh, in prison that, they, I mean, they, we knew that the IRA had never been better armed with the amount of shipments that had successfully landed from Libya and presumably other shipments from elsewhere. And yet, there was a military stalemate. And I, was, I and others in the prison were forming the view that there was now a moral imperative. If you, was, if you admitted that there was a military stalemate, and British Army officers had been quoted in the London Independent as saying the same, I said, well, if that's the case, yes, you can fight on for another 25 or 30 years, but what for? You're not going to materially change your negotiating position, on the, and yet many, many people are going to lose their lives. So I, was, I formed the view by... Before the ceasefire was announced, I had formed a view that the IRA needed the ceasefire and that it would have to compromise and it would have to rely on politics uh, alone. When I came out of jail, I mean, I initially sort of reported back to Sinn Féin and Jay Adams said to me, look, you haven't seen, you haven't been with your kids for six years, you know, take a year off. And during that year, I finished my third novel uh, about an IRA informer, which I'd begun writing in jail. And I then realised that I'd always wanted to be a writer. I was now middle-aged and a grandfather, and if I didn't go down that road, I would never go down it. So when the year was up, I said to Jerry Adams, who's a good friend of mine and who, who supported my decision, look, I'm going to become a writer here. I said, I still support the party, you know, whatever way I can, in terms of contributions to papers or whatever, but basically that's what I'm going to become, and, uh, and that's, that's the path I chose. I remember in, in the interview in... Uh, uh, David, uh, David, P.U.P. Irvine. David Irvine. David Irvine. I came up and interviewed him in his office in Stormont uh, for a book that I was writing, and he was telling me that it was the Bloody Friday that basically broke him as a young man, and uh, it was interesting because that's what the Bloody Friday had got forced him to, or compelled him, or influenced him and to join the UVF and to take up the stand that he took. And at the same time, Bloody Sunday did that with young people. Yeah. Termin did that. And it was just, it just, way, it just shows you the way one act 
begets the next act, mm -hmm. and the next act, and the next act, next act, mm -hmm. and exactly out of control after that situation. So I, I, I was glad that the Republican leadership had the courage to uh, ceasefire. And it, it was a hell of a risk because the SDLP were the largest party within the nationalist community. And they weren't always going to circumscribe the, the magnitude of your Republican demands. They were always going to circumscribe them and compromise them even more. So it was a, it was a tough decision. Yes, there were people who split away and they were the ones who carried out the Oma bombing on the 15th of August 1998. But I think that there's, I mean, it took a long time for each side to slowly scale down its aggression. And when I, when I met uh, former IUC men, former British soldiers, etc., it was just interesting to hear from their point of view how they saw it, how they saw the IRA's economic bombing campaign was against their jobs. Uh, well, the IRA saw people in, in, you know, just people in uniform. This was their brothers and sisters and cousins that were being killed. And I cannot, for example, I cannot test myself against what it must have been like for the, for an orange man or a unionist in 1911, 1912, facing the fact that there was going to be a successful constitutional Home Rule Act which was going to give devolution to Ireland. Mm -hmm. Because at that stage, the the propagandists within the unionists and the Conservative Party were able to convince a sizable majority of people that this new configuration, which was devolution, you know, Scotland, what we have here in the north except on a 32 county basis, that this devolution was going to be home rule, mm -hmm. or sorry, Rome rule, Rome yeah. and uh, it then becomes difficult, retrospectively, to completely knock that down when you see this, the Catholic state that was established in the free state. When you see the way that Devolura, you know, integrated the Catholic Church with the Free State. Now, as an Irish Republican, I, I'm totally opposed to that. As a secular Republican, I'm totally opposed to that. But you can see how that you can see now that that fear can be can be legitimately claimed mm -hmm. to some degree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Glenn doesn't have the experiences that I had in terms of with the police at an early age walking up the Falls Road. You know, stop playing handball. You had a hurl. Uh, you know, I was 15 or 16, I was stopped jaywalking through, uh, uh, what do you call it, Newcastle and County Down. Okay. Right? And, and that was the first time I ever gave a false name, because I knew, once the cops knew I was from Turf Lodge or from Manchester, that could be done. So there was all, we've all got contrasting experiences, but we are united around what Glenn said, right? We can never go back to there again. Mm -hmm. What we have here is pretty precious. Dissident Republicans who criticise me and who accuse me of, you know, selling out and all this here and... Uh, I look at the Palestinians. Every time the Palestinians try to radically change their circumstances, they get, there's no worse situation. You know, in 1967, 1973, they're in a terrible situation. They would, they would love to have what we have here. That, that you know, that, that, yes, there's still disagreements. Yes, there's still bickering going on up at Stormont, and all of that bickering and my, my experience of some of the bickering up there in recent years has actually put me off the idea of a partial and executive. And I could, I, Glenn and I share more power together in a sense, you know, at local level, at yeah, community yeah, level. Absolutely. Agree, you know, what we, what our views are about life, yeah. what's good for our families. So that is still a contradiction. I know that the Sinn Féin project is that they need, they need the executive and the assembly in order to build a good community relations with the unionists in order to reach agreement 
on a new configured Ireland. I know yeah. that's part of the project. <clears throat> I'm hoping that that is, it happens, but if it doesn't happen, it's still not going to stop me from trying to build that agreement at a social level, at a local level, at an intercommunal level. Okay. Thanks for that I answer. Mean, I think just coming, coming in just at the end, or you know, when I think back to 1994 when the, the IRA ceasefire was called, I chaired a meeting of the West Belfast Constituency uh, Association of the Ulster Unionist Party in White Rock Orange Hall, which is where we used to sit. You know, and I can remember at the time the whole mistrust that was going on within unionism and and this that's drive it now and defeat them completely outright. Because as Danny says, at the time the British Army were quite clear the IRA is an undefeated underground movement. You know, the, the British Army was clear, you know, the IRA had not been defeated. And there was a drive by some within Ulster Unionism, the, the opportunity that they were on ceasefire should be seized. But obviously loyalism then followed through with, with its own ceasefires. And from that, we, we, we led into the, the demilitarised process. Um, you know, we, we are blessed to be where we are now. Now, I know people say, well, we should be thankful that we're not killing each other. Uh, and the answer is yes, we should be, because the wounds that both from our most recent period of conflict and prior to that through history are quite real. Some of them are glossed, as I said, some of them are propagandized, some of them are myths, but they are quite real and we should be thankful. And it goes back to this, going back to the question you'd asked, you know, about what is a shared Ireland. A shared Ireland is when we as a people can sit irrespective of our constitutional wishes or identity and engage with each other under parity of esteem. Parity of esteem to me is the big emotive here. And, you know, Danny has talked about Stormont, or, or the lack of Stormont, should have said, saying, um, I believe you, political unionism, I'm not all about the unionist people, I'm all about political unionism, has squandered a huge opportunity uh, in Stormont. You know, they, they were, since 2007, in a position to consolidate and actually evolve this place. And again, because of a lack of parity esteem, they made the decision not to, mm -hmm. and they have denied rights, they have uh, basically messed around with what was a, a huge opportunity to evolve our people and to deliver on quality of life issues, and they failed abysmally. I had a conversation with uh, Doug Beatty last week. Mm -hmm. And I asked Doug to go on a little journey with me. And he, in fairness to him, he did. So I put the scenario to Doug that in 10, 15, 20 years, whenever, there's a border poll called, and the border poll is won by, say, nationalist Republicans, and there's going to be a united Ireland, a new Ireland, call it what you want. And I asked Doug, what would be his major concern going into that new Ireland? Because unlike Arlene Foster, he said he would be going nowhere, which dead right he is. It's his country. But the answer he gave me, he says, his biggest fear would be Sinn Féin. And I asked him why, and he said, because he simply does not trust Sinn Féin. So I says to Doug, Sinn Féin doesn't own the call for a border poll or a new Ireland. But he said they would have a big part to play in a new Ireland. So I suppose my question to both of you gentlemen today is, what can we learn from the recent poor performances in the southern local elections where Sinn Féin went from 
over 150 local councillors to, I believe, 88 or something like that. What, if anything, can be learned from that? And this is a long question, I know, but uh, TG Cahar RTE did an exit poll as well, and 77% of people on that exit poll said that they would vote for a United Ireland. So I think for me, that kind of proves that Sinn Féin don't own this border poll question because their, their councillor numbers dropped, but yet in all, 77% of people still wanted the United Ireland. Well, of course they don't own it. I mean, there is, we need some sort of a settlement here. And I am of the contemporary and historical view that Britain has never acted in our best interests. Never. Uh, I think we can do better on our own, but in a healthy relationship with Europe and with Britain and with Scotland and Wales, etc. No, the Sinn Féin vote, I mean, that, that's, there's another explanation for that which they have to account for in terms of their organisation, in terms of their appeal, in terms of what priorities they emphasise during their campaign or in terms of their perception to the electorate in the South. I, I am of the view, and, and I think we have to be very clear here, legally, if 50 plus 1 is enough to keep us in the union, Legally, 50 plus 1 has to be... Because the tr- then, we're not, if we're not operating under the same rules, then obviously suspicion and, and suspicion of deceit yeah. is going to come in, and that's not good. That's not good. However, I've always stated, and I stated this like 20 years ago, a united Ireland, or a reconfigured Ireland, has to make economic, social and political sense. That's my criteria. Economic, social and political sense. There's no point in anyone out there thinking that oh yeah we get 51 and that's it and the unionists they just have to take it on the chin because we're really we're running partition if that's the case yeah. why would you want a alienated potentially belligerent large minority of people who feel they're being screwed from a triumphalist point of view 800,000 or a million people it can't happen yeah. so that's why we need the discussion the debate the ideas, everybody has ideas here. How, how best can we operate tourism, agriculture, fisheries? And indeed, initially, and I presume also that's why David, uh, David Trimble saw through this, initially the cross-border bodies that were supposed to be working and the All-Ireland bodies under the Good Friday Agreement were, would have created an idea of where we should be harmonising things like hospitals, yeah. education, transport. And they were blocked. I mean, I remember David Temple, barring Barbara de Bruyne from going to one of the cross-border bodies when he had a hissy fit at one stage over something that didn't happen, that he demanded to happen that very week. So that's... I don't see... I no longer feel vanquished. The state I live in isn't the state I was born in. We have a new atmosphere here. And as long as nobody makes me feel vanquished or makes me feel second class, then I'm going to be... I'm going to be okay, my kids are going to be okay because we have got space to expand, to get educated, to create employment, to create wealth, whatever. So that's, those are my ideas, those are, those are the type of principles I have. Of course I would love to have the, you know, a 32 county democratic socialist republic, but again it has to make social, economic and political sense and unless there's a consensus for it, it ain't going to happen. Claire. Um, how do you follow on from that? Um, <laughs> do you remember the question? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, 
I think 20 years is, is, I think this is going to happen within the next 10 years. I think it's inevitable. And just, just to be clear, you think what's going to happen? A border poll. Right. I, I believe we're on, well, I personally believe that given the census of 2011 and the fact that there was less than 40% of people here who said they were British, mm -hmm. I actually believe that that was grounds for a border poll back then. But that's by the by. I believe what's going to happen is the ongoing demographic change is going to continue. That is going to be confirmed in the next census, which I believe is in 2021. That's right. And I believe, again, what you're going to see there is an increase in people who identify themselves as Irish and or Northern Irish. As that's happening, because of the failure of political unionism to reform, you're going to have an increase in what, what these people are being called as others, mm -hmm. uh, the 21%. And that 21% are the people that can be persuaded. So if we look at the EU election there, you know, where you had 42% you had pro-union parties, you had 36% pro-nationalist parties, and then you had 21% the Alliance Party, the Greens, and so on and so forth. It's that 21% that will be the persuasive force yeah. that will either make for uh, a new agreed Ireland or make force the, the status quo continuing the, the union mm -hmm. as it is now. Now, as it stands here today, I'm a unionist. And I'm a unionist basically because of what Danny has said, because the union is palpable around me. Mm -hmm. I can see the social rationale of it, I can see the economic rationale of it, and no one has ever explained to me or sat me down and said what a new agreed Ireland would actually look like. Now, by that, I don't mean transformative or change management. I'm on about, you know, if I'm going to go into a new Ireland, I want our NHS. And by that, I mean a true NHS. The, the NHS, That's because right. of Tory austerity, has had the arse ripped out of it. But what I mean is that that entitlement of all civilians to, to free health care. I would want that at yeah. point of answer. Which isn't exclusive to Irish or English or French yeah, or know, German. So, so it's that, an ideal and it's what we deserve. It's a basic yeah, entitlement. Yeah, yeah, so that's what I would, you know, so that would be a big factor for me. The other one would be our pensions. You know, I, I'm, I'm in my 50s now. I've worked since I was 16 years of age. I've paid a huge amount of my taxation to the British state. Yeah. And I want my bloody pension. And I want to know what that pension's <laughs> going to be. And I want to know how it's going to be paid. Yes. I'm also a veteran. Uh -huh. I'm a former British soldier. And, and because of my service, I am entitled to a, millet, a small abysmal man, uh, military, pen, military pension. There's a huge veterans community here because of the conflict. Tell, so, tell me this, can I just ask yeah. you, sorry for interrupting you, do you know any ex-British military people that are currently living in the 26 counties? I absolutely do. Are yes. they getting their pension? Yes, they, they get it no problem. Obviously, they lose a bit because of the banking system, because yeah. the banks make a bit of advantage. So that shouldn't the, be an issue then? No, it shouldn't, but, but people don't know. I know that because I'm from the veterans community. Yeah. People need that explained to them. People, yes. someone in the, Because the, let's face it, if there was a border poll tomorrow, and if the border poll was to, to be um, pro-European and remain with the European Union and, and, and form our, this new agreed Ireland on this island, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, the Irish, it's the Irish and British government that's going to largely have to deliver it. Yes. And it's the Irish, it's those two, I believe, that are totally dismissive and remissive of this and need to do more. But just coming yep. back to it, you know, if I was doing it today, let's look at it. 
I'm a unionist. I would vote for the pro-union, but I will accept what is in the essence of the Good Friday Agreement. So if my fellow people here in this northeast part of this island, Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, the wee north, the occupied six, whatever you want to call it, all said... You forgot the black north. All said, we want to try something different. I would be up to my neck in the positive evolution of trying to construct what that is. And I would be doing it, you know, if I think back of our recent history, you know, uh, politically I'm on about as a unionist, you know, I disagree with the DUP and the TUP. I would never vote for those parties ever, ever again. They have completely betrayed people like me. The Ulster Unionist Party who have done their, their Brexit U-turn and gone from, from being Remainers to Brexit have also betrayed me as, a, as someone who was a unionist voter. So these days I now vote Alliance and Greens, and if we think of the local elections, I would vote for people like John Kyle of the PUP, because their policies agree with me. And it's their policies are about the positive long-term well-being of me, my children, my grandchildren. And it's not just me, they're looking out for Danny, they're looking out. So me, it's easy for me, because ultimately if a border poll comes, I'm still going to tick that box of them pro-union. But that's as it is today. Yeah. And that's simply because the union is palpable, it's around me, I can see it. But if someone was to present me an argument, or not even an argument's their own word, if someone was to present to me a constructive plan, which let's face it, to date, the Irish and British governments have failed to do, then I would consider it and I would weigh up, am I actually better off being pro-union with Britain? Or am I honestly, given Brexit, better being pro-union with the European Union? And that's as best as it'll get because that's what the Good Friday Agreement, which I believe is the cornerstone of our democracy here now, that that adage of consent. And I do agree with Danny, it is 50 plus one. Mm -hmm. This stuff that Malin has come out with recently, I, I completely disagree with why there is no doubt it would be better if there was a, you know, if we got it, say, on the Good Friday, yeah, yeah. there's no doubt it would be better, it of would course. be easier, the, the, the transition period would be, would, would smooth more fully. But the reality is that it's 50 plus one, and it has to be. Yeah. And I suppose just touching on what Seamus Malin said in a recent interview, um, you know, as you alluded to there, Glenn, in an ideal world, if we start the preparation now, in preparation for a border poll, whenever that's going to be, hopefully we will bring the majority of people with us. So you won't have that scenario where people are being, as Danny said, shoehorned. Yeah, but hey, can I just say something? Yeah. There's no way, is, any, is, is, is there going to be 50 plus 1 unless people see the blueprint? Yeah. right. The type of guarantees that Glenn is, is seeking... Uh, that that people want to know about that where their health what their health system is going to be what their education system is going to be where their pensions are going to come yeah. from that that goes without saying that was my next question Danny. should the Irish government produce a white paper on a new Ireland um, and do we need an all Ireland forum set up to discuss all these scenarios well certainly when the new Ireland forum was set up in 1884 they excluded Sinn Féin and invaded the Austrian Unionist Party. The, you do need some type of forum. Whether or not mainstream unionists would feel comfortable at this stage of attending it if it was under the auspices yeah. of the Irish government. But for example, why can't we be more imaginative of that? Why can't we have it under the United Nations or under the European Union or under some international body? This uh, ongoing committee forum to discuss and tease out 
the potential that exists there, the pros and cons, and, the negative and it's yeah. up to me yeah. to convince people that this is the best way forward. Yeah. And I think that if you if you put forward a valid social, economic, and political reason for uh, a new Ireland configured in whatever way the Irish people decide, then I think you will win it. But I mean, to me, it's the fifty plus one. To me, is a legal thing. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's it's bigger than that. Of course, it's bigger than that because you would not want to uh, trigger panic in any community thinking that it was being eaten up overnight. That, what good would that serve any of us? Glenn, question for you, hmm. because... Give him all the hard ones. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> this, this might be a, a more difficult one. If we have learned anything from the Brexit experience, Ooh. it's that for major constitutional change to take place, there must be proper discussions and planning on the way forward. So coming from your, shall I say, unionist background, how can pro-unity voices best organise to prepare for any potential border poll? And I'm asking you that question because I think it would be too easy a question to ask Danny. So I would like to hear you argue for how we best can organise. Um, as in a shared Ireland people organise or the unionist people organise? Unionism needs to present their voice. Yes, They seven, need yeah. to present their argument. Yeah. They, we need to hear their fears and aspirations. So, you know, what can they do? Well, how can they contribute to this? Okay, there, there, there's two things there. I think political unionism needs to reflect and reform. The union is only as safe as those of us who live here and wish it to remain so. And political unionism can no longer assure the union. It can't. It has failed to do so. So they need to realise that they need to convince our diverse peoples who live here on the benefits of the Union. Now, religious fundamentalists who promote faith supremacy, xenophobia and homophobia are not going to do that. People who thrive on the self-anointed belief that they're better people than other types of people are not going to do that. People who wallow in a sense of privileged mindset that has no place in the modern world, let alone Ireland, are not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So I again go back and say unionism needs to reflect and reform. It needs to be progressive, liberal and inclusive mm-hmm. because presently all of that is alien to political unionism. And that's all it needs to do because the union, the status quo, is palpable, it's visible, it's, it can be there. But they need to weigh the hell up because all they are doing is appealing to the religious fundamentalists who promote faith supremacy, xenophobia and homophobia and that is not the future. You go and talk to my 25 year old son or her better still my six year old granddaughter and ask them the future that they want and it has no xenophobia in it, it has no homophobia in it and it has no faith supremacy in it. And that's where unionism needs to get its head into. It needs to, I again go back to it, it simply needs to take a huge pause, reflect and reform. And I'll be honest, I don't know that it can. I don't think political unionism can. Which brings it back to this about people like me. I believe it is voices within the unionist community, civic unionism, that needs to lead from the ground up in this challenge, because political unionism is certainly failing me. Okay. 
Gentlemen, we're an hour into this podcast and I appreciate the time is starting to um, edge on. So, I have one last question for you, which again is a massive question, but deal with it the best you can. While the Good Friday Agreement is rightly heralded as an example of conflict resolution around the world, it's failed to properly deal with the past. It's this issue, amongst others of course, that appears to be a source of division. How do you both think we should deal with the past in terms of truth and reconciliation? Danny, do you want to take this on? This is such a complex, complicated, emotional question, and there is no uh, there's no unity on it in terms not just between not just in terms of men and that, but even within each community. You've got families there who uh, maybe accepted David Cameron's apology on, on the time of Early Sunday. Yep. Other families there uh, want the particular soldiers named in the dock, sentenced, even if they're only going to do two years under the Good Friday Agreement. So there's, you can see the way people have a... Uh, there can be no unity around this issue. For political reasons, of course, and for international reasons, and for historical reasons, I would love to expose what I consider to be the British state at the top involvement in the dirty war. Yeah. In the, in the dirty war. And, and I think that, that that might help in the future, some other country or some other state or some other time. But they will do everything to prevent that from coming out. I do not want to see any elderly person, or young person for that matter, go to jail. Uh, and I think we that, that, that is not the answer. But I don't know. There's, there's so many versions of the truth. I have my opinion of what happened here. Glenn is his based on his hearth and home and his personal experiences in the Shankill Road in Woodville. So we, can't, we, can, but we can agree to disagree on that. But I don't know the answer to that question. Just before I bring Glenn in, we shared Ireland on a podcast with Eugene Reavy and Stephen Travers. And I think that's exactly what you are only after saying, Danny. They don't want anybody kneeled to the cross as individuals. They want recognition and acknowledgement from the state that they believe tried to murder them. They want that put on record. Sorry, Glenn. Would you mind giving an answer to that question? Um, I'll, I'll try. There, there's two things. Um, I don't believe the Good Friday Agreement has been implemented. And I believe that implementing the Good Friday Agreement in full will help us resolve a lot of these outstanding issues, including the Bill of Rights. But, but maybe even be a year ago, Danny and I went to Colin Davidson, the artist's exhibition, and his, his, his talk, the film, and we found it totally moving. And, you know, me as a former uh, combatant, for want of a better description, who served here in the conflict, Danny from his advocacy for uh, being a propagandist for for Para. Publicist, you mean? <laughs> you know, it, it, we we walked out and both looked at each other and with tears in our eyes said, "How the fuck do we get round this?" Because the the hurt and the pain and the suffering by many on all sides is so deep, it's so emotive, it's it's so raw and it's so real. You know you know, alright, if, if you look at someone like me, I, I have been injured twice by 
IRA armed violence. I can compartmentalise that, put that away, and for the greater good, work with, with former Republicans to uh, evolve our people along. But there, there, there are people who, who can't do that, who are still so caught up in the past. And I honestly don't know what the answer is, because I don't seek to justify violence, whether that's by the provost, the UVF, or the British state in the form of the RUC or the army. I've personally a long-standing and reputable stance on being anti-violence and that all violence is futile. But one thing that doesn't help us here is hypocrisy. And there are political parties, particularly on, on the unionist side, you know, we know what Sinn Féin are and where Sinn Féin's journey has come from. And we know Sinn Féin's e evolution out of the, the, the armed struggle. But, the, you know, the, the, there's political unionism again applies such full outrage with regards to Sinn Féin, but yet they play fast and loose with people who are known to be loyalist terror killers. And, and I hate that they're, you know, getting photographs, you know, standing on platforms with known loyalist gunmen and bombers, you know. I think the, the hypocrisy needs to stop. We need to, everybody needs to get back to the Good Friday Agreement, the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and the heavy lifting that is needed. And I think that we need to get real politic beginning because people want delivery. And by delivery, it could be like Eugene or Stephen Travers where they just simply want an acknowledgement of, of, of what went on and there's no doubt there's processes can do that but there's also everybody is entitled to justice mm -hmm. so it, it's where do we draw the line on saying look we can go this far and we can go that far I think victims um, have been used and abused throughout the process by a great many and it exists to this day but I think the political hypocrisy by some around violence armed struggle, whatever way, conflict, war, you know, as someone who was a, a, an ex-soldier, you know, you get this argument, oh, it wasn't a war. It's certainly, you know, I, I, I served here. It was a low-intensity war. There's no doubt about it. No, I couldn't roll up the falls on a helicopter gunship with artillery. That's quite true. But it was a low-intensity war, and it was a dirty war that was being operated and in a way by people that were hidden far from me as a young NCO in command of a section on the streets and it was above and beyond our and do you think are them spooks still pulling the strings? I think there is I no, I don't is the truth. Um, but I think that there is people from that background trying to influence. You know, I, I certainly know people, former members of special brands some of the actually written books about how they defeated the IRA. You know, and you just sort of look at it and you laugh and say, you know, what planet are these people coming from? That's just a provocation, you know, uh, to try poke people in the eye, to try, you know, so again, go back and say from my point of view, mm -hmm. you know, I, I come from an army that would admit the IRA is undefeated, still do. Uh, you know, the, the British army stance is officially that the IRA was never defeated. And people need to get their heads into gear and deal with this process of what was a protracted and prolonged dirty war. And that dirt sticks to everyone that was involved, whether it be the provost, whether it be the UVF, whether it be certain units within the British Army. 
and or the RUC. Nobody is clean in this and everybody is culpable. And certainly for me, there was oversight at government levels, certainly at department levels. I don't know if it went all the way to number 10, but I would, I would have certainly sat in briefings where government departments were involved during my time in the army and were certainly aware that our mission was to capture or kill the terrorist within the rule of law, preferably dead, is how it was put. Now you think of what that being said to a young 21-year-old NCO in the British Army, what that meant to him, you know, and how he could, could contrive that. But they were smart enough to do it that way. This is the whole beauty of it. You know, nobody ever came up and said, you're going out in this job and you're going to whack these guys. It wasn't put that way. So I think there needs to be a hand on heart Look, we need to deal with this. We need to deal with this and deal with this in the most practical and amicable way possible that delivers for families who want justice or who want to just get some sort of closure. And firing money at it certainly won't solve anything. No, I don't believe it will. I mean, again, it's part of the reconciliation program uh -huh. process. Yep. And the other thing that we have to keep in mind, and as Danny mentioned with some of the bloody Sunday families, and it's the same on, on the union aside with families who suffered IRA violence. There are people who simply want revenge and retribution, and we need to confront those people and say to them, you're not going to get your revenge or your retribution. You know, the closest that we have as an example on this island to, to, to where we are now is actually post the Civil War, as in post the War of Independence mm -hmm. and then the Civil War down south. You know, and I think people need to get really real. You know, that was a civil war that tore people apart, just as the most recent conflict has torn people apart here. I get the people question, what was it all for? What was it all about? Why did I put on a uniform? Why did I do this? It doesn't matter. We did it. And we are now in a, a, a period of where there is a lack of violence and with an evolving peace process. And we either embrace that peace process and we don't go to arms again. And that our common denominator amongst us all as a people is no more suffering and parity of esteem. I'll throw that in again because I think a complete problem is the lack of parity of esteem. Okay, final question, gentlemen, before we wrap it up today. What would both of you say to the young people walking our streets today, given your own backgrounds, and I suppose especially given what's happened in recent months? For example, the Lyra McKee killing and whatnot. What would your message be to the young people on all sides walking the streets today? Well, Can I have. I mean, I have uh, opposed and criticised dissident Republicans, and I mean, once days the pace and out my door to say it was under threat. Uh, I think we need to be quite clear. Circumstances today aren't the same as what they were 25 or 30 years ago. There's no way is that the, the, the people are trying to say that the PSNI is the RUC. Now, certainly I would take exception to some of the, the PSNI tactics and some of their prosecutions and some of their reliance on surveillance and MI5 tapes, etc. I would take exception to that because I think they have to be purer than pure And they in arrest sense. enough journalists and things like yeah, that. all that. All that. You can see it all there and, and I don't know what's, what's behind it. Is it completely uh, inefficient, unprofessional? I don't understand it, but the point of the matter is that there's where I live in Anderson's town, the barracks is no longer there. 
It's a green space that's been given back to the community. The community doesn't know what to do with it yet. Yeah. Everington Barracks is now an open-air concert space. Mm. In Oma, it's the same. All the roads are open, all the bridges are built. And that's why Brexit, of course, is a huge danger to our peace process, which we haven't got into and don't have time to get into. But it is not, you cannot turn around and say that uh, we are second-class citizens, that we are oppressed, that the jackboot's on our throat. All those are lies being told largely by older people to younger people because there's some of them can't move on. There's some of them stuck in the past. There's some of them love the idea of, of uh, being placed in this position of having some sort of power and control locally. And, of course, people like myself and others who oppose them might have to pay a price for that. But the fact of the matter is they are wrong. And it is wrong to be doing that. Now, I know Glenn and members of the House Community will say, well, we didn't agree with when you said it was bad back in the 70s and yeah, the 60s. Certainly. That's fair enough. Yeah. But I'm talking about where I live now. I no longer feel vanquished. People in my area do not support and would not support a return to armed struggle because they believe things have changed. And there have been signs from the unions. I mean, the fact that Ian Paisley went into power with Martin McGuinness, I still can't get my head around. Seismic. So, there's, so there's, things, there's things that can happen. There is potential there. And uh, that's, the, that's the objective, to try and bring more and more people together uh, in the conviction that we can live here together peacefully and prosperously. Glenn, what can you say to the young people walking our streets today, given what's happened in recent months? I suppose I begin by saying to my sons and to my grandchildren um, and to anyone really that's under the age of 40, you are the future of this place. You know, Danny and I are our has-beens, to be quite honest. Um, you are the people who will guide us to the promised land, for want of a better description. New politics has arrived. The EU election result shows that there is a new thinking and a new dynamic within politics. So to our youth, I would say, demand your rights. You know, rights valued in Britain and the Republic's jurisdiction are denied here. That is wrong. Go on to the streets, bang the doors of the fundamentalists that are, de that are denying you your rights and grab them, seize them. You want politics that will deliver on quality of life issues. Grab the politicians by the lapels. Tell them that's what you want. Vote for parties whose policies will deliver those quality of life improvements. And you want politicians that are accountable and responsible. Therefore, again, go to the politicians. Go to the ballot box. Vote. Vote in increasing numbers and change this place by putting in people who will be responsible politicians and not squander opportunities, not be fiscally irresponsible and not deny you what is your right as a citizen in this small place and that is that you have a fiscally responsible government that is equal and equitable to all. You are the youth. Grab it. I definitely think you should have been a politician. <laughs> um, you said that um, you and Danny are both has-beens. I think both uh, except on the dance floor. Except <laughs> on the dance floor. I think today you have proven that um, you're certainly not a has-been, and you have still an awful lot to offer within your own communities and wider civic society. Before we let you go, man, we always ask everyone this question, 
and I will go for Danny first. For God's sake. Um, if you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, who would they be and why? And they can be alive or they can be dead. Oh, that's such a difficult question. Uh, well, I love classical music. I love the music of Franz Schubert. So I'd love to have Schubert at this uh, party. Okay. And he can, he can play on the piano. Uh, I like the music of... Simon Garfunkel, oh, and okay. I recently was reading uh, Art Garfunkel is uh, I think he's a professor of literature somewhere now, but he published online all the books that he has read because he kept a note of all the books he's read since 1965. Okay. This, just that he's read. This is red. Oh it's God. just unbelievable. Huge uh, backlog of reading, both you know philosophy and and literature, the classics, etc. So I think he would be an interesting person, and. Uh, I can't, I can't think of a third, but I, mean, I can think of a hundred people who all feel offended if I name well, well, sure, you, we'll just say you invite Glenn. Was that fair enough? Glenn, Glenn brought me to a restaurant actually in England, which is very who, nice. Who, so who paid? In who paid? Danny. <laughs> well, well, the Russians. <laughs> right. <laughs> but actually, Danny, Dan, we, we, we actually went. It's, uh, we're, we're diversifying here, but it's a, it's a Lebanese restaurant that I would go to regularly when I'm in London in business. It's so called Marouche. As soon as I hear the Russians, my oh, ears pick up. Uh, it's one road and... Uh, Dan and I went, and he had beautiful lamb's tongue. Oh, it's beautiful. So, so the, we were speaking. We were speaking at the event that Peter Taylor, the journalist, chaired, All and right. it was similar, like from our different backgrounds, and it was filmed. And we we, we just got a little private joke about yes. who was who was really behind it. Okay, very good. Glenn, can I ask you the same question to finish off um, your fictional dinner party? Invite three people. Who would they be? And more importantly, maybe why would you like to invite them? I'm a guy that has led a, a journey of life that has taken me around a lot of corners, you know, from soldier to politician to businessman that is involved in international trade and a lot of international travel, so I'm a well-travelled man. I like to philosophize a lot. I love the old philosophers, so for me, Rumi would definitely have to be there and just go through a couple of his quotes and say, you know, what did you really what? mean yeah, by that? Exactly. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, India has played a huge influence on my life. Um, my great-grandfather, a Connacht Ranger, uh, was serving there when my, gra my paternal granny was actually born out there in Quetta, which is in modern-day Pakistan, but was then India pre-partition. So within our family and within me in business life, uh, you know, I've, I've traveled the length and breadth of India. You know, my wife, Jo, one of the greatest times we ever had was trekking the foothills of the Himalayas in 2007. So Gandhi, I would love to meet Gandhi and given our political discourse even over this podcast, have a yarn with Gandhi just about what the British were doing in India and how they were manipulating things and, and partition as it was happening at his time yeah. whenever they did it. And I suppose the, the curveball in this is I like my eye candy, I like my women, and I like blondes, so um, Charlize Theron <laughs> appeals to me as an actor. <laughs> Charlize Theron. And uh, I would, love to, I I would love to get her at a dinner table with me with Gandhi and Rumi and just sort of have that little bit of eye candy there to have a, an, an intellectual conversation actually with her as well, but just by looking at her and going, you're a swell blonde, you know? Marlon Monroe, was there a film with no, Marlon no, no, Monroe no, but Charlie, meeting Albert Einstein? No, Charlie's is my age and real and, you know, you know, touchable. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think we'll end this podcast immediately. And his divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen, listen, on behalf of Shared Ireland and our listeners, I'd like to thank both of you today you. for giving up your valuable time. I think this has been a very informative, open and honest discussion. And um, I think we need to have a lot more. Thank you very much, Glenn. Thank, thank, thank you very much, Danny. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.